Hey church, we are in week two of our Advent series called Kingdom Christmas. And this whole series, trying to help you look at Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Christ, through a kingdom lens. So that we're not just going through the motions, we're not just going through the traditions, but we are actually celebrating the Advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we went through the genealogy. This week we're going to do part two in the genealogy. But let's talk about Christmas for a second. Uh, Because Christmas is, uh, (laughs) it's a holiday of, of surplus in a lot of ways. And we live in a society of surplus, right? This Uh, especially where we are in the West. Not all societies like this, but we live in an unprecedented age in history where we have more people with surplus than less. Where we have have people who, um, more people die from overeating and obesity and eating too much and all the diseases that causes than die from starvation. That's the reality of our world today. It is unlike any other time in history where it used to be more people died from starvation than from eating too much. Now it's the opposite. So we live in a society of surplus. I can give you more and more examples of it. I mean, just, just let's stop thinking about society in general, but think about yourself. Think about what you have. And don't compare yourself to the, to the next person, right? We could all compare ourselves to the person down the street, Uh, who uh, rides in the Bentley, and we would all feel like, oh, we don't have as much as that person does. Uh, But don't compare yourself to the bridal path. Compare yourself to to, uh, what you think Jesus would want, right? Compare yourself. Just, Just look at what you have. Just look at what's around you. Look at the place you live in. Look at the things you have. Look at uh, the car you drive, look at your family even, look at, uh, why don't you think about right now what is in your refrigerator, right? What is in your cupboard? What is in your pantry? You know, think about what, how much money is in your bank account. And again, some of you may say, oh, well, it's not as much as I want or it's not what I need, but think about it. Think about the city we live in. We choose to live in the city that has the high cost of living, so we have to have surplus to actually live in the city. So um, we just live in a society that's filled and overflowing with things and material possessions and, and surplus. Now I want you guys to brainstorm. So I want you to take this next minute in your R3 group, or if you're, if you're watching this apart from your R3 group, just, just take this next minute or so and... Yeah, let's just do one minute and do this as quick as you can. Brainstorm situations where having a surplus of something actually hurts and hinders you rather than helps you. So when you take a minute to brainstorm when having a surplus of something actually hurts you and hinders you rather than helps you. All right, you ready? Okay, go.
Okay, time's up. Uh, I don't know how you guys did, but when I did this exercise on my own, I could think of a whole bunch of things that having a surplus would be, would be too much. Like, uh, like just in walking, if I'm carrying too many things, that's harder if I have a surplus. Like, have you ever thought, have you ever, has anyone tried to take the lazy way out and try to carry too many things rather than take two different trips? And then halfway through you drop something, then you have to pick it up, and then you drop everything. Uh, and what if, what if you were uh, swimming? Uh, having a surplus of clothes on, maybe, or a backpack on, or if you're hiking, um, or uh, you know, if you're eating too too many uh, too much chocolate cake, too many sweets, you have a surplus of it, and that's all you have. And you're just eating too much sugar. Imagine how you feel when you have too much for a surplus of that. Um, you know, a surplus of of meat, a surplus of yeah, just, just there's so many different situations. How about running? You know, Hebrews 12 talks about having a surplus on us as we run. Because Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every sin and every weight which clings so closely to you because it can hinder you from running. Imagine if you got all these weights, you got all your sin and you got all the weights and you're trying to run the race with Christ, but you can't because you have a surplus of sin. You have a surplus of, of worldly weights dragging you down. And so you can't run. And guys, not all those worldly weights are sin, right? Sin is one category. And then there's these weights that hinder us. Well, what's in that category? Well, um, Sometimes it's family things. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, if you stayed single, you, you, you would be like me, living on mission for God, undistracted. You'd be happier that way. You know? So sometimes it's family things. I, we have to go to, my, Christmas is coming up, right? We have my family dinner here. Oh, my in-laws family dinner. Oh, my, my stepmother's family's dinner. Oh, my daughter, my son, my... Uh, and then before you know it, the holidays, they're not a blessing, they're a curse. They're, they're stressful for you. Like, they're, they're not enjoyable because you're just all over the place, right? So it's a, it's a surplus. So this weight could be doing that, uh, hindering you there. Uh, it could be material possessions. I mean, it could be your house, the house you think you need. It could be uh, the cars you think you need. It could be... Uh, streaming services. You have too many streaming services. Guys, that sounds like a joke, but some of you guys are subscribing to three, four, or five streaming services. That's too much. Uh, that's too many. It's a surplus that is hindering you, right? Because um, now you feel like you have to use them. It, it, guys, so many things can fall into this, this category of weights here. And Hebrews says, if you want to run, if you want to run with Jesus like Jesus did, with enduring the cross of the joy that is set before him, you got to cast aside those weights. You got to cast aside those things. You got to cast aside the surplus. Here's the thing: not only does not only does God not need surplus, I think surplus actually hinders the movement of God in our lives sometimes. So it's not only does he not need it, I think when we have it, a lot of times it actually serves as a hindrance 
rather than something that pushes us forward. And that's because if we have a surplus, well, we don't need him. We don't need to be dependent on him because we have everything we need and more, right? We have all that we need and more. It's why it's sharing your faith with people in this society, in our city in particular, is so hard sometimes. And that's because people have everything they need. They have everything they want. They have everything they need and they have more so that they're not even satisfied with what they have because then they need the next best thing. They need the new iPhone. They need the new, say they, you, we. We need the next new thing, right? We're just not satisfied. And so that's how it hinders us because now instead of having nothing to lose, you have everything to lose in following Jesus. And you're like, oh, well, I hope Jesus doesn't call me to West Africa because then I'd have to give up all my material possessions. You know, I hope Jesus doesn't call me to uh, work with the poor because then I'd have to sell everything I have and give it to the poor. Then you might walk away sad like the rich young ruler. Right? I hope Jesus doesn't call me to do... What, what are you hoping Jesus doesn't call you to, right? That will help you identify your surplus. That's what Jesus does to this, to this man. Guys, we did this as a church. I looked at our church almost, or about two years ago. Yeah, two years ago now, I looked at our church and I said, we have a lot of surplus and we're not doing what we should be doing. Like, are we actually making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples? Are we actually living out the Great Commission? Are we just doing these things? Are we just doing church? Or are we actually being the church? Were we actually doing that? And, and when I looked at it, I said, we have surplus that's hindering us. It wasn't sin that was hindering us. It was surplus. Because we thought we were doing what we should be doing. And then we said, oh, we need to cut that out. Oh, we need to drop that. And guys, since we've done that, we've started running. And guys, that was hard. Because two years ago, we're one of the only successful church plants in Toronto in the past how many decades? Um, successful meaning if you look from the outside in, we have people and we're still going, right? And we had everything to lose. And I said, God, here you go. You take and you do with it what you want. You take it, God. And you do with us what you want to do with us. Take our surplus because we want to make disciples. And this whole genealogy is about God showing us that he does not need surplus to work through us. That's your kingdom principle for today. God doesn't need surplus to work through us. He doesn't need your surplus. He has everything. He has infinite resources. He doesn't even need us. He wants us. He desires us. Isn't that better? He doesn't need, he doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants you this morning, today. He wants you. And he's going to show us what that looks like here in the genealogy. Uh, 
just a note on this, there's four women plus Mary mentioned in the genealogy. We're going to talk about them today. It's not unusual here. A lot of people think it's unusual that women are mentioned in the genealogy. That's not, that's not what's unusual. There's actually precedent for this in First Chronicles. We see women in the genealogy there. So it's not unusual to have a wife mentioned or a mother mentioned in here. Right? What's striking about this, what is unusual about this, is that these four women in particular are mentioned. Right? The women that are mentioned aren't Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know, it's not Rebecca, Isaac's wife. It's not Leah, Jacob's wife, you know, the mother of Judah, the mother of Israel. Right? It's, it's Tamar. It's Rahab. It's Bathsheba. It's Ruth. All Gentile women. That's what's striking about this. They're all Gentiles. Um, Bathsheba, some people think that is that she's actually a Jew, but she married a Gentile. So she married a Gentile, which would make her um, essentially be treated as, as a Gentile in, in that culture, in that society. So they're all coming from Gentile backgrounds, right? Gentiles culturally at the very least. And so that's what's striking about this because... These four women, you've got like the women of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, they're, they're venerated. Like you go to, you can go to Rebecca's grave today where she was buried today. You can see it right outside of, uh, right where Bethlehem is, um, in Bethlehem. So that's still there. It's still revered. It's still honored. Um, but tell me where Rahab's grave is or Tamar's. Or even Ruth or Bathsheba, right? So these four women, it's not that they're just Gentiles, but they, they came from some ignominious beginnings, right? So Tamar here, let's, let's talk about her. She's a Gentile. She's mentioned here in verse 3. It says Tamar, uh, sorry, it says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar. So here's the thing. Tamar was Judah's son's wife. So Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And now Judah and Tamar have twins. So just that alone is like, why would this be in the genealogy of Jesus? Judah has slept with his daughter-in-law to have twins and through the twins that she had through Judah, Jesus comes. The Messiah comes through that line. Remember last week we talked about this is a line of brokenness, right? That's the line he comes through. Like, that's some Jerry Springer stuff right there, right? Like, it gets worse. So, the reason they slept together is because Tamar needed to continue the lineage and so she dresses up, she disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah uh, gets her uh, services and sleeps with her, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. So he doesn't even know until she's pregnant and uh, she shows him something he left behind. 
to show that, it, that he is the father. Guys, like, that's like, it's a whole kind of jacked up situation. And that's in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, it's right at the beginning. This is verse 3 <laughs> into the genealogy. And it already looks messy. And so Tamar is mentioned here. And it goes down to Rahab. This is uh, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed. So uh, Rahab was uh, the, the, the prostitute from Jericho back in the book of Joshua, where Israel comes in the land and they're there to, they are there to, to um, take over the land. And Rahab hides the spies and protects the people of Israel. So in turn, they protect her. And so she, she survives the fall of Jericho. And now she is in the lineage of Jesus. She's in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, which is wild. What's even more wild is she's mentioned uh, not because Boaz... Um, uh, not because Salmon and Rahab got together. Uh, that's what this kind of implies here. But there's actually a gap, a gap in the genealogy. Um, and there's some chronological difficulties with, with, with Salmon and Rahab begetting Boaz here. Uh, so it's a theological insert that Rahab... Uh, and, and you see this precedent back in the Old Testament. I'm not going to geek out on you and get into the, the, <laughs> the intricacies of it. But um, she's in the lineage. She's just not exactly right here. But it's showing us theologically what is taking place. That God is a... God, one, he transcends culture. Two, he actually also works within culture. Three, that he has a plan here to bring the Messiah, to bring the Christ, to bring this lineage... And he's going to use those who seek after him, no matter what their past history is, no matter what their sin has been. Rahab sought God. She honored God. She said, I've heard about you guys coming through the wilderness, and I want to follow your God. I want to be, uh, I want to be like you, one of God's people. And he honors her and puts her into the lineage here because she ends up saving the people and, and, and giving them access to the land. And then Ruth comes along. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from Moab. This is like a sworn enemy of Israel. And now she is in, uh, she is here in the, um, in the genealogy. And of course, uh, there's a Bethlehem reference in here as well, where Jesus is going to be born. So here you have Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And, and Ruth is similar to Rahab, right? She married a Jew, but was not a Jew. But then her husband died, and her mother-in-law was going to go back to, uh, to Israel. And, and Ruth says, I will come with you. And she says, and Naomi says, no, like, you go and be with your people. And she says, no, my people uh, will be your people, or your people will be my people. And she says, your God will be my God. It's covenant language. And so Ruth, a foreigner, a Gentile, a sworn enemy of Israel, uses covenant language, the language that Yahweh uses to say, I'm going to be, essentially, I'm going to be a Jew. I'm going to become Jewish. I'm going to be a proselyte. So Ruth does that. And Ruth uh, is mentioned here in the, in the lineage. She ends up being the, uh, what is that? I didn't figure this out. The grandmother? 
uh, great-grandmother, something, something grandmother of, of David, the king. Wow, like, how amazing is that? And then you have David, the father of Solomon. This is still verse 6, by the wife of Uriah. So the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. Um, it's not mentioned here. She's not mentioned by name. And two reasons they say may be for that. I've mentioned one already. Uh, one, that, uh, that um, uh, she's, she's Jewish and that they wanted to theologically emphasize she was treated as a Gentile, the wife of Uriah. And two, also to show, to show and remind us of David's sin, that he took a wife that was not his. And so here you have uh, four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all in not perfect, beautiful, majestic, good situations, right? You have here a lineage of scarcity. Like each of these four women had nothing. I mean, Ruth had nothing. Rahab, nothing, right? Tamar, nothing. She was going to be out on her own. Bathsheba, she had her husband and it was taken away from her. So all these women, they either had nothing or what they did have, they had to relinquish or it was forcibly removed from them. It was taken from them. And God honors them in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And, he, and they're essential. These Gentile women, these enemies of Israel, it shows that God is for the world, right? He's, that um, that God, is, God is pursuing us. And it also shows that he doesn't need surplus to work through us because these women had nothing. I mean, they were women in a patriarchal society and on top of that, what they had was taken away from them or they had to give it up. And God still works through them. What are you willing to give up to see God move? Are you willing to have something taken from you to see God move? In your surplus, what is in your open hands or what would you hold tightly in closed fists? What are you willing to give up to see God move? What are you willing to have removed forcibly, taken from you to see God move? These women, they laid everything down for God. That's Ruth's story. Yeah, I could go back to my people. I'd be taken care of there. But I want your God to be my God, your people to be my people. That's Rahab. I lived here all my life. I built a business. Have everything I need. But I want your God to be my God. Your people to be my people. What are you willing 
to give up, to see God move. You have to get rid of your surplus this Christmas. You have to say to God, I'm willing for you to take anything you want. I'm willing for you to use whatever you want that I have because all that I have is from you. And so you can take it and use it for whatever you want. What are you willing to give out of your surplus to see God move? You know, the, the next few verses here, 12 through 15, there are a lot of names that we wouldn't really recognize. Um, I mean, you might recognize a few of them, Shiltiel, Zerubbabel. Other than that, it gets pretty obscure. Right until it comes to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so after these women, you have this Babylonian, Babylonian captivity, this deportation of Babylon, and it resets the entire lineage. Guys, before this, up to this point, to verse 11, it's kings. Everyone in Israel knows these kings' names. Right? They're all in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're all in the Old Testament at verse 11. And then, like I said, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel uh, are in there as well. Um, Shealtiel is only in there because he's the father of, of Zerubbabel. Uh, but then after that, the line is in obscurity. It's why when Joseph becomes the father of Jesus, it's no one's like, hey, the new king is here. No one's celebrating. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem. Like, no one's, no one's really anticipating this. Because the whole lineage now is in obscurity from verses 12 to 16. I mean, even when Jesus is born, only a few wise men and, and shepherds are, are around. Um, and we'll talk about, uh, I mean, we'll talk about the wise men in a second or next, next time or two weeks from now. But, um, and that's it. The rest is in obscurity. But yet, Verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And this verse is here to show completeness. Even though there's brokenness in this line, even though there's obscurity, even though there's scarcity, this last verse shows completeness. Because... 14 is two sevens, and there's groups of three here. So there's, there's you know, the, the tripartite framework, Abraham, David, Jesus. The 14 is the two sevens for completeness. Uh, David's name in Hebrew uh, numerically adds up, adds up to that number as well. And, and so you have here uh, this emphasis on completeness. But all of these, all of these unexpected situations they just don't fit the mold. And then that leads to Mary, who is, who is in the most unexpected situation, right? And she ends up breaking the mold because she's in this situation, which we'll see next, 
uh, next week where she's a virgin and yet she's with child. And God takes this lowly Jewish girl from Nazareth of all places and she becomes the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. God took something that was obscure, someone who did not have surplus, but who was, who, who had scarcity, someone who, who just was submitted to the Father with all that she is and all that she had, and she becomes a name that any follower of Jesus knows because she is the deliverer, the last in the lineage to deliver our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, stop searching for fame. Stop searching for surplus. Stop searching for more likes on your social media. Stop searching for more things to satisfy that void in your soul. Stop searching even for, for uh, more relationships to fill that void in your soul. None of those things were designed to do that. And we live, in this, we live in this society now that thinks if I have more, then it'll be better. And it won't. It won't. Our attitude before Christ is sell everything we have, give to those who need it, and follow him. What are you willing to give up this Christmas? What are you willing to give up for God? To follow him, to see him take your brokenness and put you back together. To lay all the pieces before God and say, you put me back together through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as you did through these men, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all the way through, just as you did through these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, all the way through. Lay your lives down before the Lord. Give to God. Be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. That is your reasonable act of worship. It's the least you can do, the scriptures are saying. It's the very least you can do, because Jesus has done that for us. God doesn't need your surplus to work through us. In fact, it could actually hinder His work through you. And so lay your life down for Him and you'll see him work. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these women who are so faithful and they didn't have the light that we have. They didn't have uh, the direction. They didn't have everything in front of them like we have and still we're faithful. We're seeing through faith. We're not relying on their sight. We're looking towards the things that were unseen, not to the things that are seen. Make us more like Tamar. Make us more like Rahab and, and uh, Bathsheba and Ruth and Mary in this way. 
that we would honor you with everything that we have. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name. Amen.